You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 27th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everybody. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Carl with a K. Carl, welcome to the Skeptic Guide. Thanks, guys. Hey, howdy, everyone. Hello, Carl. Hey, Carl. What's welcome. up, man? Carl, why are you here? <laughs> How'd you get on this channel? Uh, well, I won the auction at the TAM 2012 Skeptic's Guide to the Universe dinner for a guest rogue appearance. Awesome. Well, here you go. See, we're actually following through. Uh, we usually try to do it like at the end of June, right before the following TAM. To build trust. Remember we did that? Yeah, actually, this is the fastest we've ever done a guest rogue slot. Faster than last year's, guy. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's really not something to brag about. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's the anticipation. We don't want him to like get it like a week or two afterwards. We want him to think about it. Carl, tell us a little bit about your journey into skepticism. My journey into skepticism, into actual skepticism rather than just scientific inquiry, really kind of started with a friend of mine's blog called uh, Polite Descent. It's a blog that he, it's not really skepticism related at all. He covers basically pop media, comic books, and medicine topics. And also, for many years, wrote a very well-followed review of House MD, the show. And he had some links to some other websites, one of which was Respectful Insolence. Checking out other blogs that he linked to, I found Respectful Insolence and started following Orac's site. And then from there, it kind of spread out to science-based medicine and Neurologica and Skeptablog, and things just kind of grew from there. It's like the Borg Collective. You just sort of got assimilated into the whole exactly the whole network. Right. <laughs> How's your implant going? Uh, <laughs> I can't talk about that. <laughs> All right. Well, it's you've now your journey is complete, right? Because you're on the SG. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you say that, Steve. <laughs> Reminds me of a certain emperor once who said that. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I was thinking about. All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about March 30th. Yes. Happy birthday to Mary Witten Calkins and happy death day to Ellen Swallow Richards. That's right. It's a twofer. Uh, March 30th, 1863, Mary Calkins was born in Hartford, Connecticut, not yeah. too far from you guys. Yeah, just around the corner. She developed an interest in philosophy and psychology, which at the time was a new discipline and was considered a part of philosophy. She studied at Smith, and then she went on to teach at Wellesley, but she wanted to learn more about psychology so that she could teach it. And so uh, Harvard, nearby, was the perfect place for her to go because they were one of the few schools with a psychology lab at the time. Unfortunately, it was not the perfect place for her because they didn't admit women. She ended up getting permission from the professors there to sit in on their lectures, despite the fact that the president of the college stated that she would not be considered a true student, that it would be informal learning. But she did it anyway. And after a year there, she figured out enough stuff so that she could go back to Wellesley and set up her own psych lab. But she returned to Harvard to continue her education. And once again, she petitioned the Harvard president who said, nope, you cannot be a real student. 
you can only sit in on lectures informally. So she did. Uh, she conducted experiments. She sat in on the lectures. She presented a thesis, which her professors unanimously agreed was more than sufficient for her to get her doctorate. But Harvard continued to refuse to give it to her. After many years, Harvard agreed to allow Radcliffe College the right to give doctorates to Calkins and a few other women who had informally studied at Harvard. But Calkins refused due to the unfairness of it all and the symbolism. She still had a pretty great life. She went on to become the first female president of the American Psychological Association. She delivered several major contributions to psychology, mostly concerning the psychology of the self. Uh, her discoveries are now a bit dated, but she did at the time further the field quite a bit. She was also notable for openly questioning accepted scientific ideas about the differences between men and women, pointing out that her colleagues weren't adequately controlling for the environment when they made bold pronouncements about biological differences between men and women. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. No. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, we've grown up since then. So yeah, she was an early, awesome woman in science. And our other person of the day is Ellen Swallow Richards, who died on March 30th, 1911. And she is the woman who came up with the idea of home economics, as she believed that women who were working in the home deserved to be educated and to be important, you know, contributing members of society. She had a ton of firsts for her life. So forgive me for reading directly from Wikipedia for a moment. But she was the first woman admitted to MIT, MIT's first female instructor, the first woman in America to be admitted to a school of science and technology, and the first American woman to earn a degree in chemistry. So Ellen Swallow Richards and Mary Witten Calkins, two badass women in science for the price of one. Trailblazers. Mm -hmm. So did I tell you guys that I actually participated in a debate at UConn last week. No, I had oh, to yeah. read about it on your blog. <laughs> I didn't get my invitation. Yeah, thanks for nothing. Yeah, was... it was about homeopathy. I debated a homeopath. <laughs> was the homeopath's strongest argument just remaining silent? Yeah. <laughs> That's called a homeopathic argument. Yes. The homeopathic Thank you. Argument. I'll be here all week. The homeopath was Andre Sane, who is a, a naturopath, a member of the... Canadian Naturopathic Society, and also a homeopath. Also, he also practices homeopathy. I actually, I did this uh, a similar debate in 2007 at All UConn. Right. Yep. Yeah, but there was there then there was it was three on three, but this time it was just one on one. Andrew Sane was there too, you know, six years ago. Roy Rumston, I think, was one of the Roy, other. Rustin Roy, Rustin Roy, Rustin Roy, Roy was there absolutely. So very interesting. It's always, you know, not that there's anything new in the world of homeopathy, but it is interesting to see what they're saying now to, and how they handle specific arguments. Essentially, his approach was this. He would quote me from one of my many articles that I've written on homeopathy saying that there is no clinical evidence to support homeopathy or whatever, just some statement about homeopathy. Home homeopathic remedies have no active ingredient, whatever. And then he would present some study that contradicted my statement. And there were really good studies that he pointed out, yeah, right? right? Oh, yeah. Ironclad. Each step of the way, it was the most pathetically crappy study you could imagine that he he found entirely compelling. As if this is established. He's even said that at some point. This is now – this is done. This is established. This is now 
We can take this as a fact. <laughs> and, and that's so, the crux of the difference, isn't it, Steve, between pseudoscientists and normal real people? And <laughs> Normal people? That was uh, d- certainly the difference between me and him in terms of how we defended our positions. I think that um, there are probably other differences in terms of you know where we're coming from. For, like, for example, I can't go over everything because it was a, you know, a long debate, but one new thing that homeopaths are saying these days, there was a, a, a paper published in India – uh, in the last year, where the researchers found that even so-called ultramolecular dilutions, that's ultramolecular means greater than Avogadro's number, so there shouldn't be any active ingredient left. That's what they do to get their papers published, you know, because if they say homeopathy, no respectable journey, journal will look at them. Um, so they, now they call it ultramolecular aqueous dilutions. Oh, that's that's a, a creationist tactic. <laughs> Yeah, or it's like cold fusion is now low-energy nuclear reactions, right? So the, to get away from the stink of cold fusion. It's the same, same so kind the of new, So the new homeopathy terminology is ultramolecular? Yes, ultramolecular delusions. It sounds kind of comic book Delusions. Yeah. Yeah, it should be delusions, yeah. Um, <laughs> ultramolecular delusions, that's awesome. So they, they published a paper where they did ultramolecular dilutions and they still found – Nanoparticles of the starting Ooh. ingredient. Nanoparticles. Oh. Nanoparticles. What, are those yeah. molecules? What are they? <laughs> so, <laughs> here's the thing: the study was small, uncontrolled, and of course, because it's uncontrolled, it's unblinded. There's nothing to blind. There's no control. It was uncontrolled. <laughs> a study's a study, isn't it? So, Steve, explain what that means, though. When you say uncontrolled, give there's me no specifics. control group. There's no control group. So the researchers knew what they were looking for, and lo and behold, they found it. Yeah. They didn't compare it to anything. So they have they have no idea if this is a contaminant, what it actually is, where it comes from, what it means. It's just they found an anomaly, and that was it. That's, That's the evidence. dowser knowing which pipe has the water yeah. running through exactly. it, saying, hey, okay. look, the the, the sticks point that, and the reason why that sucks is it it totally skews the results. It invalidates the results. I think I remember reading about that. I mean, they didn't even do a test of their water before to compare it to the after to determine if it already had the contaminants in it to begin with. Oh, nice. now don't get crazy, now. <laughs> yeah, Carl. I mean, come on, you're getting, you're getting all sciencey on us over here. <laughs> Interestingly, one of the authors of this paper wrote an email to Harriet Hall at Science Based Medicine. And saying, hey, look at our paper. We know you guys are skeptical of homeopathy, but we've proven that there's actual stuff in there and would be happy to engage with you in a dialogue about this new exciting scientific evidence. And Harriet wrote back, very polite as she is, and said, that's, that's nice. Can, can you, here's the, here's my opening question for you guys. Can you tell me why there were no controls, no control samples in your study? The author wrote back and said, we don't discuss things with nasty skeptics. This is the end of the conversation. <laughs> oh. There's wow. your scientific debate. There we go. Wow. End of debate. Did they actually use the word nasty? I, I might have paraphrased <laughs> that, but <laughs> that, didn't, yeah. All right, well, that being said, though, that that was there. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? They basically said, oh yeah, right. So, but excuse me, you emailed us, and now you don't want to have a discussion because we asked you one question: Why did you not include a control group? That was it. End of discussion. That's the qual. That is the study. That Andre quoted as Steve contradicting my claim that ultramolecular dilutions don't have any active ingredients. Steve, you know what Gollum would say to all this? <laughs> what would he say? You James? nasty little skeptic, is this? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Probably. Nice. Well, Steve, yeah. did you tell that story on stage? Yes, I did. 
good. Of course That's I hilarious. did. It is hilarious. Of course I did. Oh, yeah, man. so then that was it. That's like, that was the exchange. You know, he had one crappy study after another. And then I, you know, we went to the clinical evidence and I presented um, the systematic reviews. Now, I deliberately chose a systematic review that was not authored by Edzard Ernst because I know they hate him. But no. then I also included his systematic review of systematic reviews from 2010 because it's still the most current, thorough systematic review of clinical studies of Cochrane rev systematic reviews of homeopathy. And it's completely negative. I mean, he came to the conclusion that homeopathic remedies do not have any effects beyond placebo. And his response to that was, Edzard Ernst is not a real homeopath. He he well, only, he only uh, took six months or whatever, and not two years of homeopathic uh, training, and he lies about being a homeopath. And he's a he's a nasty person. You just basically ooh, launched nasty, into yeah. an ad hominem attack against Edzard Ernst and against me for relying upon Edzard Ernst for my analysis, which is not true. I yeah, it's hardly reliance. Quoting him once. And also, I know how to look at studies myself. But in any way, Edzard was conducting a systematic review of Cochrane reviews. He he was just collating what they said. He wasn't doing research. He wasn't even doing a systematic review. He was just co – directly, he was just summarizing the results of all the other systematic reviews that were that were high quality. Yeah, he was shooting the messenger, Ernst the messenger. That's ridiculous. And then I checked my – all right, so one thing we did – was fun about this debate is I was, we were able to ask each other questions. So I asked him, what is the – uh, indication for which homeopathic remedies have been shown to be effective in multiple high quality, you know, reproducible clinical trials. And, you know, he, he did sort of try to dodge that a little bit, but he say, he said, Oh yeah, they exist like the, the Jacobs review of homeopathic remedies for diarrhea. That was his best case. That's the one that he, that he threw out there. So I sort you know, again, he could have thrown anything at me. I, you know, I do remember the, the uh, details of the homeopathic clinical studies for diarrhea. I just didn't like review them right before the debate, so I couldn't cite the you know them chapter and verse. But I did afterwards for my blog review of it. But um, but even at the time, I was able to say. But though we're talking about several small methodologically flawed study studies with mixed results. So though Jacobs reviewed three studies of homeopathic remedies for diarrhea. And he's a, and this is a homeopath. This is a guy trying to spin it in a positive direction. And he said that it, you know, it indicates that there's possibly an effect here. Another, uh, other authors reviewed the same three studies and said these, these results are mixed. So you have three studies with mixed results. That's, you know, not compelling evidence. And Jacobs did a follow-up study that was more rigorous and was dead negative. So once again, we have this pattern of the better studies are negative. You never get any consistent signal, you know, it's consistent effect from the, from the clinical research. It's just this, these mixed results. And then when you finally get around to doing a rigorous study, it's negative. And this is, this is, this is studies done by homeopaths. That was the best evidence he had to offer clinically. He, you know, Sane's thing is that he ha has studied the historical evidence for homeopathy. So he goes on and on about this plague in, in the 1800s, you know, where homeopaths treated cholera and cured everybody, you know. It's like, really? You know, and that 100-year-old anecdotes is, is compelling evidence. And if, if the claims that they made for the effectiveness of homeopathy during those plagues were true, 
it would be absolutely trivial to demonstrate that homeopathic remedies were effective against those epidemic illnesses, right? It'd be trivial if the and if it's not as effective as they say, then they're lying. Then the then the results are not reliable, which is you know the the easier explanation. You know, I've seen 150 year old sort of pre scientific reports, anecdotal reports of homeopathy, or all of physics, chemistry, and and physiology on the other side. What's more likely to be wrong? Yes, I I've always thought that their best options were talking about times when homeopathic hospitals, people weren't dying as often because the doctors weren't bleeding people to death yeah. or doing or having terrible sanitary conditions. Uh, and that's it. Like, yeah. it's not that they were doing any kind of effective treatment. It's just that they weren't killing them quite as quickly when doctors were using terrible techniques. Yeah. 200 years ago, doing nothing was an advantage. Yeah. So that's the update on debating homeopathy. So did you have a good time? Yeah, I always I always enjoyed doing that. It was fun. And what was the audience response? The audience was packed with homeopaths. Oh. <laughs> so Evan, you're going to tell us about a tiny fossil hunter and a tiny fossil. Yes, no. I am. But first I'm going to ask you all this. So, what were you doing when you were 9 years old? 4 foot 1. Yep. <laughs> that is a long time. Carl, what were you doing when you were nine years old? Can you remember? Wow. That would have been 81. Probably thinking about Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> Sounds about right. Right. Safe Typical, bet. right? So as best as I can remember for myself, I was in some kind of fog, right? I was just constantly daydreaming, you know, in this prepubescent state. And I had a healthy fascination with fire, to put it lightly. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, you know, you're nine years old. You're, you're a boy and, you know, these things fascinate you at that age. But I'd like you to meet Daisy Morris. She's nine years old. She hails from the Isle of Wight in the United Kingdom. And she just had her first prehistoric creature named after her. Wow. Uh, Daisy's mother says that her daughter has been a fossil hunter since the age of three. And by the time Daisy was five years old, so this is 2008, and she's already in her to her third year of her paleontology hobby, she's walking along the beach, she's looking for fossils, and sure enough, she hit the paleo jackpot. Some dark-colored bones were protruding from the sand in her path. She stumbled across the remains, and with a gleam in her eye that could only be generated by that of a five-year-old girl, she took a deep breath and she said aloud, Look at the bones! <laughs> <laughs> that had to come out she, at some point. Huh. It's like you were there. You know it was going to... Um, <laughs> okay, so she carefully collected the bones, and together with her mother, they brought the bones to Southampton University. Uh, there, the professors studied the bones, did their tests, and they were able to determine that these fossils were a new genus and species of a small pterosaur. Holy crap. That in its, I mean, look, you're finding, finding fossils is exciting enough. You know, discovering any kind of fossil is, is a rare experience for anybody. But to have found the fossil remains of a new genus and species, I'd say is practically beyond belief. Yeah. And, wow, and I was, you get to have it named after you. That's absolutely. Cool that. I was a total absolutely. loser when I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> Pterosaurs, in case you don't know, are, were flying reptiles from, uh, from the lower Cretaceous period, which is some, well, ranging from 65 million to 200, 
20 million years ago, and they're saying that this particular find is estimated to be around 125 million years old. And the reason that it was in the news just recently is that this new species name was officially confirmed in a scientific paper published uh, just a few days ago. So, the SGU would like to officially welcome Vecti Draco Daisy Morisai to the collective sum of human scientific understanding. Awesome. So, that is welcome. so cool. Yeah. Pterosaurs are cool. They, their wings, you know, they're, they're mainly supported by their, by their pinky. That just is hugely extended. It's very different from birds or bats. So birds, bats, and, and pterosaurs all evolved flight, but with, com- with completely different anatomy. Bats have like all their fingers support their wing. Their wings are basically their fingers. Birds, their wings are their arms. And pterosaurs, it's just their, their one finger. Hugely elongated finger. Isn't that cool? That doesn't seem like a good idea. Sounds painful, too. So what are these, what does this creature actually look like? Do they have a drawing of it or anything, Ev? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. They have, they do have some drawings of it. Had a wingspan of about two and a half feet and was just over a foot from snout to tail. So picture the size of a gull or large crow of today. So pretty small, especially when you, uh, compare it to its, uh, larger cousin. Quetzalcoatlus, which had a wingspan of more than 30 feet. Which is, yeah, so it's it's very small, but its close cousin was the largest thing to ever fly on Earth that we know of. You know, it's cool for lots of different reasons. Obviously, the age of the person involved, Daisy, you know, it's fantastic that she's hunting bones at that age, you know, like I said, where most of us are, we don't even remember what we were doing back then. And I think it drives home the point that there's a little bit of luck involved in the oh, scientific yeah. process, right? I mean, timing is, is, was essential here. This, These bones on the beach, I mean, eventually would have found their way into the ocean. It would have been swept away, eroded away, and set adrift or whatever. Yeah, so I have one question about the situation is that um, like normally if you find a fossil embedded in rock somewhere, and you're an amateur, you know, whether you're just a fossil hunter or not, you're, just, you're not a scientist, and you come across fossils, you're probably better off leaving the bones where they are and because the scientists are going to want to investigate where the bones are embedded, not just the bones themselves. That's how they may date them based upon the rock that they're in. But this situation was a little different because she found them on the beach, right? So these were probably already washed away from wherever they were deposited. Right. And so probably the, the, I mean, if it was just in the sand on the beach, then that doesn't really matter. Right. There's nothing to be gained by finding those bones in that beach. It doesn't tell you much about it, about when or the surrounding area right. or anything. You know, when, it, when it's, something is fossilized or it goes through that process and the tissue decays around the bones and everything, I mean, is there anything in the immediate ground right where the, that's touching the bones? that gives any DNA or any kind of samples for scientists to find out more about the tissue of the creature, or is that all just completely obliterated? When bones fossilize, by definition, minerals around the bone replace the calcium in the bones, uh, and that's what they be, they literally become stone, uh, but they retain their structure. But fossilized bone can still retain some DNA and we can extract tiny amounts of DNA even from fossilized fossilized bones 
up to tens of thousands of years old. Not where the actual real tissue used to live outside, you know, off the bone, like the meat of the leg or whatever. There, there's nothing in the dirt right there where that used to be, right? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not at, no. By the time it fossilizes, any soft tissue is completely destroyed. Yeah, that's why we'll probably never pull a Jurassic Park and and uh, get DNA and, uh, and grow a, a dinosaur because it's the, DNA just does not last that long. I mean, there's an upper limit where, where this, you know, where, where DNA will, will survive. I don't know what that limit is now, Steve. Do you know we what the limit is? Talked but, about that recently. Yes, yeah, it's, it's thousands six million of years. years. No, 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 it's thousands. Uh, yeah, of years. it's certainly not sixty-five million years. Yeah, you would just think bacteria would gobble it all up as food. Well, I mean, it has to be very special conditions, low oxygen conditions, for example, like things that fall into the silt at the bottom of a river. You know, that's that's where things get fossilized. Most of the stuff that just dies on the surface somewhere, it does get completely decomposed and does not fossilize. Only a very tiny percentage of bones end up getting fossilized because they wind up in some special um, environment. Same reason why we don't see, we talked about it, the same reason why we don't see bones laying around everywhere outside because it's taken away by rodents and aliens and things. Yeah, they're efficiently destroyed. Yep. All right, well, let's move on. Jay, you're going to tell us how fracking is causing earthquakes. So the question here is to frack or not to frack? Or I should have said to frack or not to frack. That is the question, right? Uh, yes. Just yes, to, you should have. I thought at least you'd appreciate that, Evan. Absolutely. The uh, yep. basic idea of fracking, just to quickly remind the audience, is uh, fracking is when you inject water, sand, or chemicals into the deep shale formations, and you're trying to break them apart underground. And what what you're doing is trying to release gases or oil or whatever it is that you're you're trying to pull out of the ground you're trying to release it from breaking up all of that shale that's under there so it's like a, a big pressurized well in essence that's exactly what fracking is the problem is that fracking uses quite a bit of water to do what it does so on tuesday the 26th of march researchers from the university of oklahoma columbia university and the u.s geological survey published their latest findings about hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas, also known as fracking. They published their findings in the journal Geology. And what they found was uh, they referenced a earthquake that happened on November 6, 2011. It was a 5.7 magnitude earthquake that happened in Oklahoma. And they say it was linked to drilling and, and the injection of water that, as I explained, is part of the fracking and drilling process. That earthquake was followed by an 11-fold increase in seismic activity across the central U.S. in recent years. The earthquake was the biggest in the state's history and could be the largest linked to the injection of water from the drilling process. But all the experts don't agree. The state's geological office said it was like was likely the result of natural causes, which I find interesting. I mean, they're still not 100% sure what's causing it. You know, we have different parties coming up with different conclusions. It seems to me, though, that there's a lot of people saying that fracking definitely can cause earthquakes. I thought that was really strange when you think about it. Like you think of an earthquake as kind of like a tornado. It's like a really big thing. Like how can humans have any real effect on that? But from what I read, the idea is that the injection of all of that lubricant, as you can think of it, was essentially what water is doing is all of that liquid that's in that region of the ground is, is loosening it up. It's giving, it's, it's making things able to slip and slide. And that can cause an earthquake. You know, I guess it is a little bit, it's not as stable as I, I thought it was, or you would assume that it was. 
The research paper warns that disposal of the millions of gallons of fluids from the hydraulic fracturing is most likely to cause, and they propose that the government needs to have better monitoring and have oversight involved with, with all fracking procedures now. I, f- I thought this was interesting. So it, from 1970 to the year 2000, the seismic activity in the U.S.'s mid-region averaged about 21 incidents a year. That number went up to 50 in 09. It went up to 87 in 2010 and 134 in 2011. So, you know, okay, it seems like that's a smoking gun. I don't really know what those results mean because who knows? There just could be some type of thing going on that we don't understand. But they're using information like that to try to come up with some answers here. And because of concerns over earthquakes caused by fracking, the UK had stopped the practice of fracking temporarily until the late, until late 2012. And then at that time, they said, well, we're going to allow it again, but we're going to put some standards in place. So, the oil and gas industry in the United States are now looking for other ways to deal with the wastewaters for the same reasons. And that's that's where we're at with fracking. So th- I did find a- another recent study, Jay, that um, showed that uh, increased earthquakes only happen when the water injection is near a fault line, which makes sense. And that other areas – so the fracking itself, without it, the water getting access to a fault line, doesn't cause – earthquakes. That makes sense, yeah. I didn't find anything that addressed this question. Maybe we just don't know the answer yet. Because it seems like, you know, the fluid near a fault line is making it easier for, you know, the the the, the rock to slide against each other, the, the different sides of the fault to slide against each other. So are we essentially triggering a lot of little quakes that would have inevitably happened anyway? You know what I mean? Like, I don't are, I don't know. I, I think it's an are interesting we getting, point. Yeah, are we getting 20 small quakes because we're lubricating the fault line at the, which would have been one bigger quake if we had let it nature take its course? I don't know. It it's it's a hard question. I couldn't even begin to answer it. I, my only comment is is it better to have the smaller earthquakes than one big one? Are those easier to deal with or maybe, you know, is the aggregate yeah. amount of damage from 20 small quakes versus one big one is there a big difference? I have no idea. It is a very interesting topic, though, and I think I'm glad that people are doing research into it. I don't know that there'd be any way for them to tell what the timetable would be in that circumstance, though, Steve. Like, you know, even if the answer were yes, that this is many small earthquakes instead of one large one that will would eventually happen, I don't know that they could tell you when it would happen, you know, two years yeah. from now or yeah. a million years from now. We're just doing statistical information you know, about how many yeah. quakes of what magnitudes are happening and just trying to, you know, correlate that with fracking activity. Um, but it's it's hard to, yeah, it's absolutely, yeah, obviously you can't do a controlled study, right? Yeah. Um, you can't replay events and see what would have happened had we not fracked. You know, I think that if they keep looking at this, it's, you know, it sounds like they're, they're showing, the, yes, there are more earthquakes, but only if the, if the injected water is getting access to a fault line. And now they have to, do a lot more, you know, statistical analysis to see what the effects are and maybe compare areas that aren't being fracked over a longer period of time and just keep gathering more data, you know. They better not accidentally trigger that Yellowstone super volcano. Yeah. I will be pissed. I know. That's, I'm to- scary. That, that's like on the fill plate that's, level of destroying the earth. Like that's, that's some epically scary stuff. Not but, the earth, just the United <laughs> States. No, Steve, that could that – could, <laughs> 
create a, a like a winter of sorts, you know, putting too, so much junk into the atmosphere. Oh, my God. Yeah, effects would be worldwide, but it's not the yeah. worst volcanic eruption, though. Flood basalt's worse, much worse. What's that? Oh, my God. Oh my god, you don't even want to know. Can't say it's that bad. I read a description. Imagine looking at an eruption from horizon to horizon, like a mile in the air, spewing lava, and it lasts about, you know, a few thousand years, and then it stops, and then it starts again for like another thousand. It's like crazy. Wait, wait, has this actually happened on the Earth? Yeah, look at the the um, what's it called the the um, Siberian Flats. What's that called? I yeah, yeah. talked it, it, about this. Like, they, like oh, cover, a, co- cover a continent in like a kilometer, you know, of basalt. I mean that that makes a super volcano look, look like you know not not that much. It's how, sorry, my my question is, how long will it take for me to die if I see that mile high magma wall? Oh my god! Seconds, minutes. It depends. Well, it depends how close you get, Jay. But it's like it's a it's a crack in the crust. It, it's nasty, nasty, and. <laughs> Crust crack, yeah. As much as I like a good fracking story, uh, I read a couple more articles on this and even followed the abstract on the thing. And it looks to me like they're not actually talking about fracking in this case, but they're talking about uh, wastewater from injection wells, which is a little bit different than hydraulic fracking. And that -hmm. that this Mm -hmm. particular quake was created by injecting wastewater in depleted wells, wastewater used in a slightly more conventional form of oil extraction, but nonetheless would have major implications for fracking because fracking produces a large amount of wastewater that needs to be disposed of. Yeah, I agree, Carl. The the article was a little unclear. They were predominantly talking about what they're going to do with, with fracking wastewater because there's so much of it, and they are currently pumping all that water into the ground. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing, they said most of the water that they use doesn't even make it into the ground, but it's still a phenomenal amount of water that's left in the earth. All right. Well, Carl, you're going to tell us about the man who never has to eat again. Cool. Yeah. Well, Rob Reinhardt has a uh, blog or website. I remember him from All in the Family. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, website okay. that at least it has a nice name of Mostly Harmless. something somebody posted about on Facebook, and I followed the link, and he apparently decided that he was really just tired and resentful of all the money and time he invested in having to prepare and consume food and then having to clean up after himself. And so he decided he was going to reduce his diet to just all the essential nutrients and was going to create himself a simple beverage containing all the essential elements and nutrients that he needs, and he would call it Soylent. I mean, Good name. I, I That's like the awesome. name. That's awesome. And he put some green food dye in there. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Well, Soylent was tofu, right? And Soylent green was people. Yeah. So calling it Soylent d- doesn't necessarily indicate that he meant the green variety. There were several no, but- varieties. No, but there is a certain image. Yeah, you can't help the association. Yeah, technically it wasn't. But it's a cool word. I mean, you know, of course it's in the, I mean, sci-fi thing, and it's fun. But I I think it was. It's not a bad name for it. You wouldn't name your kids Soylent and say, "Oh, well, it's (laughs) well, not their first name anyway." (laughs) (laughs) The thing that really fascinated me about it was fairly unscientific way he went about doing it. You know, he basically he read a few books. Search the internet for nutrients and just kind of 
started hodgepodge putting in what he thought were essential nutrients and trying it out on himself and then tinkering it with and adding things. And when he started to feel sick or something and realized that he forgot to put (laughs) iron in, he added iron in after the fact because I guess simple research on essential nutrients didn't mention iron. But he he didn't do what I would do in a situation like that where I'd find a nutritionist and a one of my medical doctor friends and discuss with them what they thought I needed to do. He just kind of went out on his own. I think he has a bright future in the supplement industry. <laughs> or, you know, he could have gone to the supermarket and bought a six-pack of Ensure. Oh, well, yeah. sure. But reinventing the wheel is fun. Yeah, but... Yeah, but, he just yeah. He reinvented in his kitchen something that already exists on the market, multiple brands. Huh. You know, someone's already done all the science, has already completely balanced all the nutrients and put it all together for you, and and it actually tastes good, too. So is Ensure meant to be a complete diet replacement? Yes. That's exactly what it is. It's meant to be a complete diet replacement. Wow. Or boost or whatever. There's a number of of specific ones that, that they are for people who can't eat and who need to live on milkshakes, basically. I I see what you're saying, Steve. I mean, I don't. From an entrepreneurial perspective, like go ahead. I, I think it's fine that he that he's trying to do this, and uh, as long as he finally does get FDA approval, if he ever wanted to take it that way. But I think he's just cooking this up in his own kitchen for now, and I, I'm for not, himself. Yeah, yeah. Carl, did did he say in the article that he was going to try to sell this oh, or go anywhere since, with it? Since he posted his original blog, he's had many people contact him for information, and apparently he's got numerous people now also trying this out at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting mentality when you think about where the guy's coming from. He he doesn't want to waste the time and and the expense of eating. He just wants to get it over with as soon as he can, for the most part. I don't think he was eating this 100%. It, wasn't he having a few normal meals here, here he, and yeah, there? Yeah, he, he was something like, well, for 30 days he said he ate only this, and then... He kind of started going back to eating mostly this, but, you know, when he gets together with friends, he'd still dine and appreciate dining. But he's still, Mm. I think, more than 75% drinking his Soylent. Yeah. It's interesting because there was a thread uh, a couple years ago on the SGU forums where some people were talking about uh, a surprising number of them all hated eating. Like, it's not that they... Um, found it painful or anything, but they were what I imagine it must be like to be asexual. You know, they just, they, they found absolutely no pleasure in eating. So they, uh, they, they were talking to each other trying to find a solution to, because it was just a wasted expense because they, they weren't getting anything out of it. So they wanted something that was basically like a shake that they could make you know, dazed in advance and just keep in the fridge and drink as needed, you know, to save the time and the money. But the weird thing is that, and so that's what I thought of when I first was reading about this guy, but it doesn't sound like he's actually like that. It sounds like he's just like a a nerd who wanted to, (laughs) wanted to do this for the hell of it, you know, because he says that he he likes eating. So it doesn't really make sense to me in, in, in that regard. But like it does make sense to me for the people who who take absolutely no joy in eating, no joy. or people who, yeah, yeah I mean it, it's it's 
Even really in, bizarre in to me. Peanut but... butter? Have they ever tried peanut butter? I know. <laughs> but I that's just the way they're they're built, I guess. But we're so, all the, come on guys. Sad. There are times you get home from work and you just want to eat like a bowl of cereal for dinner. You don't want to have to go through the There's hour no problem long with that. cooking cleaning right, so expense. Just that's okay. Eat a bowl that's of really, cereal. Don't don't, of cereal don't, don't develop a, a new formula and <laughs> Spend weeks making yourself sick over something that you haven't researched properly. He said something interesting where he was tweaking it like a chemistry experiment. And he would plus or minus the calorie intake to to regulate his body weight. And he was, you know, he kind of called it hacking. He was like hacking his body in a way. That was the terminology used in the article. Overall, I find it interesting you know, I think it's more, it's culturally interesting to me to find people that are finding eating inconvenient and everything. And I couldn't disagree more. You know, I would, like I said, yeah, I'll throw down a bowl of cereal here or there. But for the most part, you know, I want to sit down and have a warm meal and overeat and enjoy myself. I love it way too much. Meatballs all the way. Yeah. I just, I can't and believe they- that in all the articles about this, no one mentioned that this product already exists. <laughs> I just found that, I, you know. Don't be stunning. a party pooper, Steve. Yeah, right. Why not, detract from this guy? Not only stuff? do they not mention that it exists, but a lot of the articles go on about how this is the solution to impoverished, yeah. yeah, hungry people. Really? And it's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> obviously this bottle. is not the solution. You know, I came but. up with something not too long ago. Like I was at my desk and I'm like, I'm thirsty, but I don't want to have to like put my lips on the faucet. Like I need something, I don't know, like, some type of <laughs> thing to put liquid in. Where are you going with this, Jay? So I invented like this container for liquid. Now ah. I keep it at my desk. Was it you know, cubicle you invented or, or cylindrical? Yeah. It's cylindrical shaped. It fits into my hand nicely. Okay. I'm going to run with this. Is it I open on both ends? No, no. Carl, one end is open, right? Uh-huh. Then you put your mouth to the open end and you just lift it up. It's really cool. It works. It works. Oh, I think you've just solved so world thirst. closed on the other end. Oh. That's right. Yeah, you can't have a hole in both ends. I think you anyway, need to get a Kickstarter campaign to fund that. I'm already I'm doing it right now. And you drink from the near end, right? Not the far end. <laughs> well, well, well more tests problem. have to be done. Yep. Yes. We We're do. working on it. All right. Bob. You're going to give us a quick uh, update on the Voyager probe. Yeah, Voyager was yet again in the news uh, this past week or so. A paper published in the American Geophysical Union's website claimed that Voyager 1 appears to have traveled beyond the influence of the sun and exited the heliosphere. But it turns out that the celebration was was perhaps uh, premature. Uh, NASA quickly rebutted the announcement, saying that it's the consensus of the Voyager science team that Voyager 1 has not yet left the solar system or reached interstellar space. So so what's happened here and who's right, who's wrong? Well, uh, first of all, I think you got to know what, what a heliosphere is. It's uh, It can be considered the boundary of the solar system, kind of a bubble surrounding our solar system well beyond Pluto that contains essentially the sun's solar wind and its magnetic field. Those are the two, the two main things, kind of like this plasma bubble. Now, signals from Voyager in uh, the fall of 2012 indicated two things that seemed consistent with the idea of it being outside the heliosphere. And number one was anomalous cosmic rays dropped to a hundredth of their former levels. And I wasn't, I wasn't too aware of these, but apparently these are, these are com- cosmic rays that are trapped in the outskirts of the heliosphere and can't get out. So uh, th- they dropped 
to a, a 1% of what their former levels were. And the number two, galactic cosmic rays greatly increased. So you put those together, it kind of makes sense. You know, things that are within the solar system kind of went away and things that are kind of outside increased. So, you know, it seems reasonable to assume that, hey, it's, go- it's left the solar system. But NASA apparently has a number three on its list. And according to them, the, this linchpin indicator of the, uh, the, the, out, you know, the end of the solar system is a reversal of the direction of the magnetic field in the solar system uh, that's created by the sun. And this reversal has not been detected. And that's the bottom line for them. If, that, if it hasn't, been, if it hasn't re- reversed, then we're not outside yet. So then where is Voyager, right, if it's not outside? NASA believes it's in a, a, this new region of, of the solar system called the magnetic highway. This is kind of where the magnetic, the magnetic field of the sun connects to out, outside. And uh, so it's not surprising that we'd find a new layer uh, to the solar system once we actually send our instrumentation out there. So that's, that doesn't, that's not very surprising, and it's very interesting. And that's pretty much all I've got on that. One thing I wanted to cover is, Steve, uh, I think you made an egregious mistake, uh, was it last week or so, yeah. when you said that? You said that the player on the Voyager, you know, that, that golden disc with the, the with record, music yeah. and, and, and images. Yeah, there, there is no playback mechanism on Voyager. Yeah, so when I, when I was reading about that, they said that there are instructions for how to play the record on Voyager. I assumed that that meant there were instructions for how to use the player on the probe itself. Oh, I see. But there, the I mean, instructions are how to build a player. Not, know, not even that. Not even that. It's, it's really to how to how to play it. Uh, there's there's an image in the upper left of the of the record itself. Uh, that seems pretty clear what it is. And also, apparently, there's a stylus. It yes. said that uh, there's a stylus actually there that they can use. And it shows how to, how to use the stylus, how to orient it so that, so that you can play it back. And it also says things like what the rotation speed needs to be, one rotation per 3.6 seconds. Of course, they didn't express it as seconds. It was some, it was some you know, fundamental unit of time. See, so, Bob, I thought they had an actual funk band in Voyager that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> Now I'm picturing only- like an IKEA style uh, instruction booklet and a bunch of aliens <laughs> scratching their heads and wondering Four where Slot B is. Yeah. <laughs> right. I thought that this, I thought they just threw an iPod on there, but I forgot that it was actually well before iPods. Mm. We don't have to worry about it, Steve. We know from Star Trek V that the Klingons destroys Voyager in target practice. Oh, I knew somebody was going to bring <laughs> oh, that up. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. No, awesome. but there were two Voyagers. The other one, V'ger, became sentient. Don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Evan, it's that time again where you're going to tell us about Who's That Noisy? Yes, indeed, Steve, and I'm going to play for everyone last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. When I started to talk to him, I started to learn that there are a lot of misconceptions about the dangers of vaccinations, and in particular the association with autism, and um, I found it to just be really sad. That Is that Jim Carrey's new wife? No. Several guesses. Yeah, no. I mean, those a lot of guesses came in thinking it was Jenny McCarthy. Well, the thing that's interesting, Evan, is that new wife. the clip that you have there, it's, it's not obvious if this person thinks that there is an association between vaccines and autism or that there isn't. Right. She it, words it in such a way that it's a bit ambiguous. Unless you have a the context ambiguous. of the rest of what she said. She was definitely defending the practice of uh, vaccination and taking a swipe at the anti-vaxxers. So that is none other than our friend Amanda Peet. Who is awesome. Who Mm -hmm. is awesome. In 2008, Peet volunteered to be a spokeswoman for Every Child by Two, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates 
childhood vaccination. And she's been praised for her uh, outspoken stance in those efforts. Cool. Well done. And there were a handful of people who actually got that correct. And from our random drawing, this week's winner is none other than Fred Bremer. Fred! Good old Fred. That was random? Fred got picked on random? Random. Well, there were were four correct guesses. Uh, Oh, okay. I thought there was going to be like a hundred or something. Nah, I kind of hoped. But uh, nope, four correct guesses. And Fred, you got it this week. Well done, my friend. In case our audience doesn't know, Fred Bremer is the guy that has made it to every single SGU dinner that we've had. All right, Evan, so what do you got for this week? Okay, this week we have a logic puzzle for everybody. Three scientists, Albert, Isaac, and Marie, are talking to each other about a collection of scientific books owned by Jonas. Albert says, Jonas has at least four books by Maxwell. Isaac says, No. Jonas has less than four books by Maxwell. Marie says, well, according to me, Jonas has at least one book by Maxwell. If you know that only one of the three scientists is correct, then how many books by Maxwell does Jonas possess? I know it's not Isaac because he should have said fewer instead of less. (laughs) (laughs) Fewer books. Fewer books. You want me to re-say that? Nope. I want to make fun of okay. you for saying it wrong. <laughs> well, I didn't say it wrong. It's how it's how I it's how the puzzle was presented to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's a common one. Fewer versus less. All right. So, wtn at theskepticsguide.org is the email address, and sguforums.com is our forums. Go ahead and post there. Send us an email, however you like. Good luck, everyone. All right. Well, we're going to do one email this week. This one comes from Julia Burke. Uh, Rebecca, do you know I Julia? I know Julia Burke. Yeah. Julia Burke's yeah. awesome. She's Julia written writes, several guest posts for Skeptic. Yeah. Julia writes, I'm cool. a friend of Rebecca's, a former CFI employee, and a huge fan of SGU, so let me start by thanking you for all that you do. You're and welcome. I, I always find it interesting when people thank me for all that I do, really everything, for <laughs> right. cleaning out my garage. Not no, that yeah. fart yeah, that, for that, that out. That time you pick, activities. You pick that hanging thing. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll assume they mean my all of my skeptical things that I do. All right. Anyway, yeah. she writes. Not not that banana tree you killed, by the way. Oh, don't don't get me started on my poor banana tree. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> Love it. Good. The quorum is still alive, though. Thank you. All right. Here we go. She writes. My editor at Buffalo Spree Magazine sent me a press release about two local scientists affiliated with Ecology and Environment Inc. Just outside of Buffalo, New York, they have apparently established something called the more than gravity theory. I did some Googling and had trouble finding anything about this that didn't seem to come right from the the press release. If two local scientists are using a prominent Buffalo company to promote woo, I want to know about it and write about it. That said, if there's something to this, I am obviously interested in covering that as well. Have you heard anything about this? Having no physics background, I don't have a lot of frame of reference, but the lead to the press release prickled my skeptic senses. And then here's the quote from the press release. Through 50 years of research and observation, scientific and engineering experts Gerhard and Kevin Neumeyer have developed a new theory that refutes the 400-year-old assumptions currently held by the scientific community. Any help you could give me would be much appreciated. So I know you guys have uh, (laughs) taken a look at the More Than Gravity website. My, oh my, this is like, this is Neil Adams territory. This is, it's not quite quantum jumping, 
but it's getting close. Mm. The, their theory, if you if you read their executive <laughs> summary, huh. is that here I'll just read you some of it. The planets are positioned in a quantized order. We found what? a simple equation that accurately predicts the velocity of planetary orbits and distances from the sun. So th- basically, they're saying that what governs the movement of planets around the sun and moons around planets is not just gravity. There is something else going on. And one of their main pillars of evidence is the fact that um, the orbits of the planets around the sun appear to exist in some kind of mathematical sequence. You, you guys have heard about that claim before, right? Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bode's Law. Bode's Law, right. Which is interesting. You know, I've, I've talked about this with astronomers before as well. It's like, is there anything to Bode's Law? Is it just a, a coincidence? And, it, you know, the, the, the reading about it some more, and the other thing is, now that we're finding lots of exoplanets, well, we can test Bode's Law. If you look at other solar systems, then we, you know, Bode's, Bode's law is a law and not just a mathematical, you know, numeral, numerological coincidence, then it should hold up. But we haven't really gathered enough data yet. We don't really have complete solar systems, you know, enough to know. But what some astronomers are saying now is that, well, it's essentially pattern recognition. If you have any solar system, one thing you could say is that planets are not going to be right next to each other. Right, because they would they wouldn't mm-hmm. be stable. They would bump into each other eventually. So by necessity, planets have to space them out to some degree. Once you settle into the remaining planets in stable orbits, they have to be somewhat spaced out. And if you have any system like that, you're going to be able to find some factor that some ratio that will match the orbits. So it's not that there isn't a pattern. It's that there's always going to be a pattern just by random chance alone. So the fact that there is some kind of bode-like pattern to any solar system doesn't mean anything. That, that's essentially, I think, what the, the astronomers are saying now. Now we even have some additional data from exoplanets. But these guys say, nope, this is a law. You know, that this, this, it's quantized, like, ele- like electrons are quantized in an atom. And there's some relationship there. Then they do this, all this numerological stuff to try to show that it's, that there's something meaningful there. So you guys know what the extra thing is that is governing the movement of planets and moons? <laughs> solar uh, wind. The solar wind. So wind, no. why doesn't the wind just blow everything away? <laughs> yeah. Don't get technical, Jay. So they think that the solar wind... All right, did you ever watch Bugs Bunny where yeah, Bugs no. Bunny takes the cannon and he, he twists it? And then when the cannonball comes out, the cannonball continues to travel in a helical pattern. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yeah. sure. Classic. So that's what they think is going on. They think that the, the solar, <laughs> that the solar wind doesn't travel straight out in rays from the sun, that it travels out in like an expanding spiral from the sun. A Fibonacci sort of thing. And that these spirals are what are pushing the planets in their orbits around the sun. OMFG. What? Well, they'd have to overcome a lot of science saying the contrary if anyone's to take them seriously. I oh, suppose. Come on, Newton, Einstein, Kepler, all those guys are morons. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. That's right. So, Newton, you know, Einstein, morons. <laughs> right, that's what I thought. But my, my first question is, why? Like, why? Why would you even speculate on this? I mean, it's not 
I don't know. Like, I don't want to say that. Because they're cranks, Jay, because they've, they thought they saw something profound and, and then they ran with it rather than finding, you know, asking the question, is this really real or is this just a pattern which seems to be real? They didn't honestly ask that question. And then before they finished going down that rabbit hole, they've completely reinvented physics and astronomy and everything. And, you know, uh, it's just unbelievable that just the nonsense these guys are spewing forth, but with mathematical equations and precision and everything. So, but there's just fundamental, there's so many. I mean, the, the interesting thing here is like count the fundamental scientific <laughs> problems with their, with their theories, you know? The solar wind doesn't travel that way. The other thing is, even if the solar wind followed the path they said, it would still be pushing the planets out. It's not mm-hmm. a lateral force. It still <laughs> would be a net force away from the sun. So are they are they thinking it's more like water going down a drain? As uh, far as the, the moon, I, I guess, the but reverse. I guess, but like sort in, of in a, yeah. going away yeah, from yeah. the sun, not towards the sun. They also use this to explain why. The moons, most of the big moons in the solar system are in a locked orbit. Uh, like the R moon always shows the same face to the sun, to the earth. They also think that the solar wind is what's pushing things down to the planet. <laughs> oh. So put solar wind. Yeah. I don't know how that works when you're, when it's nighttime. Uh, you know, when you're on the opposite end of the planet, but apparently the solar <laughs> wind is, what pu- is what's pushing you down to the ground. So here's some other fundamental problems with this. If they're right, if there's this other force at work, the solar wind, and gravity doesn't explain precisely and completely explain the movement of the planets and the moons, then the theories by which we have been sending probes out to other planets would not work. Mm, we would not, point. we would not have been getting pretty pictures back of Jupiter and Saturn. Those probes landed precisely where we wanted them to. Our theories could not have been profoundly off, as these guys claim. Period. Just, un, just impossible. I I read through all forty three pages. Of Holy this. crap! Good for you. Uh, Massacre. And I mean, there there's just way too much to even get yeah. all the highlights. But just a couple of points, like you know, if it's solar wind that that keeps us on the planet, they don't even explain how. Galaxies are bound together gravitationally because right. there's no star in the center of there. But like just basic <laughs> errors, like at one point they start talking about dark matter and they're equating dark matter with black holes. Well, I think they're saying what I took from that was that dark matter is is really a manifestation of the fact that our theories of gravity don't work. That you know, the that Newtonian yeah. gravity doesn't work. That's why we have to invent dark matter. So that's yeah. That's the, that's actually the least crazy of the things that they say because it is you know some astronomers have been thinking well maybe modified Newtonian gravity is really the solution to dark matter but you know it turns out that we, in in the ensuing years we discovered actual dark matter we don't know what it is but we we well, we could see that it's there it's not just that mo- Newtonian gravity has to be modified but. That's at least they have an argument there is that our equations about gravity might be incomplete and that's the real explanation for the missing gravity. It's, it's, it's not this dark matter. It's that our equations are off. Well, uh, I, I got the, the, that, but when they're talking about dark matter, they were talking about scientists were searching for dark matter and equating that to searching for black holes. Yeah. As that, as if they thought, scientists thought dark matter was black holes. 
Yeah. I found it very hard to follow their arguments. They were oh. not coherent. And like, I always felt like I was left hanging. Did you have this feeling, Carl? Like you're, like they're building you up for this, the explanation and the explanation never comes. Yeah. It's like, and here's the explanation. It's this way. Well, no, that's a statement. You haven't actually given any explanation for yeah. what you're talking about. It's just an assertion. It's yeah. not evidence. It's not, and the ego woven throughout this is also unbelievable. <laughs> but so here's, you know, it's just fun to think, all right, how many things c- completely and utterly by themselves contradict their, their, these notions? One is comets. How do comets fall in towards the sun if the solar wind is what's moving things around the sun? And the pathway that comets take are perfectly explained by a gravitational theory. And, and wouldn't the comet's tails be shaped differently if uh, the solar wind had that effect? Yeah, that's right. Or here's another thing. So at one point in the paper, they say that no one's ever measured the gravitational constant. So apparently they never heard of the Cavendish experiment, where we where scientists measured the gravitational constant. They directly measured it. Do you think it's that they haven't heard of it, or do you think that they're trying to snow someone? So they have an interactive part of their website and other people brought up to them uh what about the cavendish experiment and they I, again there mm-hmm. they had some response to that but it was incoherent it didn't make any sense it's like oh that's just looking at the effect of iron balls on each other yeah the gravitational <laughs> effect yeah, they, they Gee, took- observation but steven they say there's a one in a 30 billion chance that the planets all orbit the sun in the same direction could be the result of random chance. Right, right, right. So how, completely ignoring the fact fi- that it's supposed to be that they all rotate in the same direction because they were part of the same rotating, swirling cloud of gas that collapsed. Yeah, but that's just – you're just invoking something that happened yeah. in the past. Yeah, nobody I'm invoking big planet. Nobody was here to see that happen. This is literally what they say when you say, yeah, but what about the swirling disk? Oh, you know, you, scientists just invent stuff that happened in the past in order to explain what's happening today. But our theory beautifully explains it without having to invoke these invisible forces or things that happened in the past. It's just, I mean, it's just unbelievably ridiculous. Well, let's um, move on. We're going to go on now with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Carl, are you ready for your first science or fiction? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, wow. that's, that's the spirit. Here we <laughs> go. Carl, You're come on, ready. really? So, <laughs> it, I have a love, I have a love-hate relationship with science or fiction because it forces Why? me to do something I don't do. Is that speculate Think? on things that I don't know about without researching them first? It oh. is painful ever, at times. Ever play poker? Huh? Well, we'll talk later. Not for a long time. Okay, here we go. Item number one: Scientists report the discovery of a new lizard species, Tetrahymena. That exists in seven distinct sexes. Item number two, Nature recently reported that two counterfeit scientific journals successfully scammed hundreds of researchers out of author fees. And item number three, new genetic evidence suggests that primates evolved trichromatic color vision while still nocturnal rather than as an adaptation to diurnal living as previously believed. 
Carl, as our guest, you have the extreme privilege of going first. You didn't know it was a privilege, did you? Uh, no. Good luck. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> so, so, first one, scientists report discovery of new lizard species that exists in seven distinct sexes. That's an interesting one. That could be kind of complicated. Right? Imagine, like, th- those are some complicated relationships. How do you pair up at dances? That's one of those ones that seems so crazy, you almost think there's got to be something to it. But uh, I don't like that one. But let's move on to the next one. Nature recently reported two counterfeit journals successfully scammed hundreds of researchers out of author fees. That one seems very plausible. Uh, I don't really have any problem with that one. New genetic evidence suggests that primates evolved trichromatic color vision while still nocturnal. That's interesting because I always thought that color vision was pretty weak under low light conditions. And I wonder how you would evolve color vision in low light when you're mostly nocturnal. So that one seems problematic. But man, that first one is so crazy. The seven distinct sexes thing. If it's true, that'll be fascinating, and I need to read about that, but I just, I have a hard time buying that one. Unless there's something subtle here that I'm not thinking of, I'm going to say the distinct sexes one is wrong. Okay, Bob. Ah, I don't want to go now. (laughs) (laughs) The seven distinct sexes. Uh, Lizards just seem too evolved, too complicated for that to make sense. You know, if it was something much more simple, I could buy that so i'm having a big problem with that one counterfeit journal scamming yeah sure why not i mean what problem could i have with that it's probably easy to do and get away with yeah the uh the trichromatic color vision uh evolving uh during the during the the night yeah that that makes no sense because color vision is essentially useless at night uh which is and because the uh the cones are close to the fovea the retina that's why people say at night if you want to see something really sharply, don't look directly at it. Look a little away from it so that your your um, your rods come into play for night vision, and that's how you could see things more clearly at night. And so that makes no sense, unless perhaps those primates. You know, you I guess you can you could be nocturnal but still have minimal activity during the day, and you would have a benefit if you if you had color vision. Uh, during those brief periods of time, so I can I can kind of justify that. Uh, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, I can make a case for all of them, so I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. Well, you're going to pick one, right? I know. Sometime I know. tonight, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the scientific journal fiction. Okay, Jay. All right, the one seven sexes. You know, I have lots of questions about this one. It's a really provocative science or fiction item like does it can only two of like you know there's seven of them and can can sex one and sex two only mate and sex three and sex four only mate but there's an odd number maybe like three of them can only mate. it's very complicated relationships going on it's kind of weird nature uh the the one about nature reporting that that there was scam journals scamming people i have no reason to doubt that there are scams all over the web i that one is absolute fact the last one about the genetic evidence that is suggesting the color vision one. So between the the first and the last one, I think I'm going to go with the one about the lizard species as being the fake. Okay, Rebecca? Am I the only one? I feel like color vision is perfectly helpful to nocturnal animals because there are 
plenty of times when it's bright enough at night to see in color, like dusk, dawn, and full moons. The counterfeit journals, yes, totally makes sense. We talk about crap journals all the time, and they always have really fancy sounding names, and they're just crap. And uh, so I I can completely <laughs> believe that some have been counterfeit and have made off with lots of money. The lizard species, Bob totally said the right answer, and then, I think, and then continued on. He's, he said, lizard species, lizards are too complex, uh, maybe a smaller organism. And I agree with that. I don't agree with Bob's final answer, uh, but I agree with that. So I'm going to say that the lizard species one is the fiction. And Evan? I'm going to go with the lizard species. I'm going to say that that one's the fiction. Oh, big mistake. So you all agree that new genetic evidence suggests that primates evolved trichromatic color vision while still nocturnal rather than as an adaptation to diurnal living as previously believed. You all think that one is science and that one is science. Woohoo. Thought all I might right. get some of you guys on that one. That was fascinating. That was surprising to me. I feel like I read Shit, this yeah. ages ago. There may have been some previous studies about this, but this is a new study looking at the genetics of tarsiers. Oh, uh, tar cool. Tarsiers branched off very basally from the primate tree. Basally? Yeah, so very close to the to the beginning of the primate tree. And so therefore, by looking at their genetics, we can say something about how what early primates may have looked like. What the genetic analysis indicated was that they all that they had had a common ancestor with the rest of primates with trichromatic vision. So that would suggest that trichromacy evolved, you know, before monkeys and apes became diurnal and that therefore it evolved even while while early primates were still nocturnal. Uh, it's not the only possible interpretation of this, but it does strongly suggest that. And Rebecca, they do hypothesize what you said, that rather than primates became diurnal and then that provided the selective advantage for trichromacy or, or greater color vision, that primates evolved trichromacy probably because of uh, vision at twilight or during a full moon. Uh, they gave yeah. those examples. Yeah, and that and there are, there are other uh, animals that are nocturnal that have color vision, right? That's yeah, the but, thing that I remember reading before, and I always thought that the reason for that was because it is a useful adaptation, even for nocturnal animals. Well, most. Uh, other vertebrates have tetrachromacy. So mm. they just haven't, they could be nocturnal, but just never lost their, their color vision. Right. Most mammals ha are, just have two pigments, but primates and marsupials. Part of the marsupial uh, family, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> are, have trichromacy. All other mammals are dichromats. Right. Okay. So yeah, so they think it, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe it was the, you know, the um, fortuitous development of trichromacy, which was selected for because it will be, be an advantage during a full moon or during during twilight, that then allowed primates to become diurnal. So just the, the um, cause and effect was reversed. It, you know, the adaptation came first, and then that led to the ability to, to, uh, to shift to more uh, daytime activity. Yeah, they hit the ground running, so to speak. Yeah. All right, let's. I guess we'll take this in reverse order. So let's go to number two. 
Nature recently reported that two counterfeit scientific journals successfully scammed hundreds of researchers out of author fees. Bob, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Sorry, Bob. Oh, sorry, Bob. Whatever. Sorry, other yay. scientists that got ripped off. Yeah, so wow. well, now I feel bad for saying yay. These were counterfeit counterfeit online websites of real science journals. That's why they're counterfeit. They weren't just crappy mm. journals. They were so one uh, one journal was the Archives des Sciences, which is published by the Society of Physics and Natural History of Geneva in Switzerland. So what these uh, counterfeiters did was they they mocked up a website of a real journal. But a journal that doesn't have its own website. So these were paper-only journals that don't have a website. And Clever. then – and they did a really good job of making it look legitimate. Uh, and then they would – you know, authors would submit papers through the online site because who wouldn't? You know, you go online, look at the journal. There it is. They would pay the author fees for the – you know, to – some some journals can't afford – you know, they don't have enough revenue – to publish to, to to print you know the journal so they just make authors pay a fee to to publish their paper which I always thought was cracky but whatever and then um, they would take the fees and they and then they would just abscond with them uh, now the the editor of the real journal was start, was getting inquiries from scientists saying hey when's my paper going to be published and they had no idea what they were talking about what paper you never submitted the paper to us and then uh, an indexing Thompson Reuters indexes – so this is an index of scientific publications. They were uh, using the website in order to index published articles and they started to notice discrepancies between the articles that were being published on the website that the website said were being published in the journals and the articles that were actually appearing in the print journal. But you know, for a while, they were actually in indexing the fake websites. You know, before they figured out that it was all a fraud. Then, of course, they quickly removed it once that was uncovered. So Nature reported that hundreds of researchers were, were scammed out of their author fees. And apparently they tracked the money to Armenia. <laughs> the journals are trying to get these sites shut down, but they can't do it. Why they, not? I don't know. Because they, of international law? I guess. They just can't get them shut down. That sucks. Well, yeah. part of the problem is uh. they're in another country, and it's complicated. Yeah. So I think one of the lessons here is even if you're a print-only journal, you know, you got to scoff up your your URLs with your name yeah. on it, and you got to park a website on your brand. It, these were targeted because they had no web presence, so it was a vacuum that these counterfeiters were able to fill. Come on, it's 2013. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Okay, so let's go to number one. Scientists report the discovery of a new lizard species, Tetrahymena, that exists in seven distinct sexes. That one is the fiction. But Tetrahymena does exist, and it does exist in seven different sexes, but it's a protozoan. It's not a lizard. The new study that inspired my fake news item uh, el elucidated the genetics of the different sexes. So this is actually a really interesting protozoan species that is used in a lot in research. What they found was that just two genes determine which of the seven sexes an organism, one individual tetrahymena 
would be. And they also found that, so when two tetrahymena come together to mate, at that point, they essentially decide which of the seven sexes they're going to be. And then they mate. And then their offspring also is, the the sex of their offspring is also randomly determined. It's really awesome. Yeah. I actually read this paper this morning and I was going to write a post about it on Skeptic, but I couldn't think of the perfect joke. So I ended up not doing it. And I'm really glad uh, I didn't because otherwise you would have seen and it yes, wouldn't have. Because <laughs> I, I always check. And I would have gotten this. Right. I always check Skeptic before I decide my science <laughs> But yeah, it is, it is really cool, particularly because it's randomized. Like, yeah. you know, the fact that you have two different sexes making baby and the baby's sex has nothing to do with the parents sex like they don't get it from the parents sex it's bizarre and interesting also what's interesting about this species and partly why it's uh, used frequently in genetic research is that it has two nuclei Whoa, Uh, what the hell it has a germline nucleus and a somatic nucleus so the the genes are separated out and that uh, that allows for you know experimental manipulation you can control for things a little bit more because you know you know, that only some genes are in one nucleus and other genes are in the other nucleus. All right, Steve, I'm going to hit you with some randomness. I'm going to roll the die. You ready? Okay. And here I go. Number one. Number one. Oh, I got it right. Very good. Very clever. I think the die cheats. I think that's the only explanation. Yeah. It's yeah. always on Wikipedia. Yeah. All right. Well, good job, everyone, but Bob. A rare solo <laughs> Bob loss. But I, Bob, I admire your courage for going against the herd. GWK. Good job, Bob. Good job, Carl. Good job, Carl. One hundred percent. Perfect record. I'm never going to meta game again. <laughs> Don't meta. Uh, so, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. I have a cool quote this week. This quote was sent in by a listener named Jim Kelly from Austin, Texas, and the quote is from someone named Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher, theologian, poet, social critic, and religious author. And the quote is, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. Soren Kierkegaard! Gesundheit. Thank you. That's a bit obvious, isn't it? I think I've heard that one somewhere before. You, you don't... You it's fine. You, don't, <laughs> you see if you don't like Let's it? Wrap this up. Another one? It's fine. It's just, just that fine. observation. Is, yeah. Yeah. And then what? You know, did, did, oh, what are you that, saying? You're smarter than Kierkegaard. No, I'm just saying, what Steve, was, that you're saying? Was that, it just seems a bit obvious. Yes, you could believe something that's not true or not believe something that is true. Okay. Well, I mean, he guy was walking around in the mid 1800s, so that, you know it's pretty progressive thinking. Maybe, maybe it's only obvious because he thought of it a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I'm standing on his shoulders. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. Yep. So, hey, next week we are at Nexus uh, in New York City. There is still time to get tickets if you're going to be able to come and join us. We'll be doing a live show as well as a private recording. And don't forget that there are four tickets left for the private SGU recording Saturday evening. Uh, Two of these will be raffled off to anyone who pre-registers for the show by midnight Monday Eastern Time. Uh, That's April 1st. And two are available for auction on eBay. Uh, you could find the links to those in the show notes as well as on the Nexus homepage, necss.org, uh, and also on my blog, Neurologica. Speaking of, I have a, I have a plug. Speaking of events, 
Uh, I am going to be in Prague April 16th through 20th at the Academia Film Almo... (coughs) (laughs) (coughs) Sorry. AFO. AFO AFO.CZ. I will be at a science film festival along with Richard Saunders, apparently, and maybe some other fun skeptics doing talks and watching movies and seeing what there is to be seen. I don't think it's in Prague. It's near Prague. That's that's all I know. Just don't I have, go by any windows. I don't understand what that means. Yeah. You don't want to get defenestrated. Oh, nice oh. one, Steve. Nice one. Was that to do with- <laughs> I knew that word would eventually sneak its way into the show. <laughs> I don't get it. What does the that de- have to do with Prague? The defenestration, the defenestration of, Prague. of Prague. It's a famous Very. historical event. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Do some oh, kids yeah. out the tower window to their death. Oh. Yeah. Look it up. Defenestration of Prague. Can I just throw out a little shameless self-plug for my no. my my blog that may or may not exist anymore now that the TV show Fringe is off the air, but my my blog, uh, cordialdeconstruction.com, if anybody's interested, especially if you like the show Fringe. I, mostly what I did there was do scientific reviews of episodes of Fringe. That's well, cool, you just man. have to move on to some other series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find one that's works and there's shows like revolution and stuff but fringe just had great variety of new stuff every week to cover well thank you all for joining me this week and carl thank you for joining us well thank you for having me yeah thanks carl thanks carl thanks man thank you carl and until next week this is your skeptics guide to the universe the skeptics guide to the universe is produced by sgu productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>